Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkron, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Malcolm Keating on a, a brand new 2020 publication, Controversial Reasoning in Indian Philosophy. Hello, Malcolm, and welcome to the program. Hi, Raj. Thanks for having me. Um, Malcolm, where are you these days? Are you still Assistant Professor of Philosophy and Humanities Division at Yale NUS College, Singapore? I am. I am indeed. I am uh, in the United States right now, teaching online for them, given some uh, complexities of the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, but I am indeed uh, still in Singapore in some sense. So you're teaching in Singapore, but you're located in the United States. Yes, at least at this point for the semester for some uh, family reasons and things. I was on research leave in the U.S. Uh, when the, the pandemic hit. Uh, so that, that made things a little bit complicated, but I am still teaching Indian philosophy of language and some other courses at Yale and U.S. with my, my students uh, online by, by Zoom in the mornings and evenings. You know, I'm in a similar boat in that I'm situated in the land of Toronto, um, and I teach uh, at the OCHS, the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, um, online. And those students themselves are all over the place, mm-hmm. many of whom are in the UK, but some in America, some in Australia, mm-hmm. uh, some in various European and Asian countries. Um, and I've recently accepted a position to teach undergrads at the University of Calgary, while in Toronto to teach them online. Mm-hmm. Um, when I initially started teaching online in 2017, I really, I went from a, a cynic to a convert to mm-hmm. my proselytize, you know, <laughs> you can do a fair bit. It's, yeah. it's quite yeah, shocking how mm-hmm. intimate an experience you can have from abroad. And, and these interviews have been, uh, I've been doing them on zoom for as long as I've been doing the channel. Yeah. Uh, Zencastro when I can, mm-hmm. uh, that's the preferred mode, but, you know a thing or two about these interviews, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have uh, been doing some interviews on the uh, language channel for the New Books Network for the, the past uh, few months, um, I think starting in February or thereabouts. Imagine you're enjoying it. Yeah, yeah, it's a fun time. I, I get to talk to cool people doing interesting stuff uh, in language, uh, broadly speaking, typically philosophical works, uh, because that's my area, but not always. Sometimes uh, branch out to other other kinds of disciplines. So yeah, it's been fun. I've learned a lot. Yeah, similar with the Hindu studies um, uh, podcast. I mean, there's so much in Hindu studies that I would never read because it doesn't really pertain to my work and you know it forces me to read everything from hinduism and ecology to you name it right Mm -hmm, mm um uh, and it's good it's actually good uh my my job probably similar to yours on your channel is to keep things as accessible as possible yeah and i stay on the surface and kind of go scuba diving every once in a while Mm -hmm. and then my job is to bring us back up for air uh so that the audience can can stay with us um so controversial reasoning in Indian philosophy, mm-hmm. the subtitle is Major Texts and Arguments in Arthapathy. Yes. Um, switch it up a little bit. Tell me who might be interested in this book. Well, the hope is that we're getting a few different groups of people. So there are um, 
people who do philosophy. Uh, and that includes what we might call Indian philosophy, but it also includes people who are working in the broadly analytic tradition. So going back to kind of Frege and, and Russell, depending on your you know understanding of the history there. Um, so I'm thinking people that are curious about how um, knowledge works, how we acquire knowledge, how uh, we communicate um, using incomplete sentences. Um, so knowledge, language, and also logic, people who are interested in the structure of arguments and the structure of reasoning. Those, that's kind of the big picture for folks in philosophy. Um, but then also, I think there are people who are interested in Indian philosophy and who may already have some acquaintance with some of the thinkers in this text. Um, so, and these can be people who are in philosophy departments, but, but also often in South Asian studies or religious studies departments who are um, interested in the sort of um, the, these Sanskrit thinkers already. Um, so those are the sort of the, the two main uh, groups within philosophy. But then I also think, you know, of people who who are primarily maybe uh, Sanskritists or who are not interested in philosophy per se, but are interested in the broader intellectual world that these thinkers are part of. Uh, it's also a book for those those people as well. So, again, Asian studies, um, religious studies, sorts of um, areas, Hindu studies, because um you know, you're, if you're interested in Hinduism, um, part of Hinduism writ large is reasoning about texts and reasoning about uh, how we come to know things. So, Great, thank you. Um, so the book, I think, uh, provides a great deal of fodder for folks who study Indian philosophy or Indian philosophical debates. Um, and it seems to me a fairly accessible sort of entry into the very nature of the debates, right? Like it's sort of a, you know, you can go and attend a specialist conference presentation, but it's a good sort of entry conference. It's sort of like Madison, you yeah. know, it's a user-friendly conference. So you can get a handle of what, what the, mm -hmm. the lay of the land is type thing, mm -hmm. um, which is great, which is not always easy. Well, it's really easy to accomplish. Yeah, it's, it's hard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so congrats on that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the genesis of the volume? Yeah, so this the idea for this book started when I was uh, back in graduate school at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, so uh, very briefly, um, I came across the topic of this book, Arthopathy, which is sometimes translated as postulation, um, presumption. We'll talk about that later. Um, in, the, in the work of uh, another thinker, um, who um, who my dissertation was on and who, who my recent book um, was on, Mukulabhatta. And so I was like, oh, okay, this guy's talking about this thing, orthopathy. It, it seemed kind of minor in his work and it turned out not to be. Uh, so I was like, oh, this is interesting. And so I started to explore the intellectual context that he was um, working in, um, why he thought this was important, this kind of way of, of reasoning, this way of knowing orthopathy. Um, and I uh, sort of started exploring that a little bit. And I went to a conference in, um, in Greece um, where I did a panel on epistemology um, with uh, Elisa Freski, who does Mimamsa, which is a, an area where orthopathy, as we'll see, is important. And um, we, you know, we just started talking about orthopathy and, and uh, you know, kind of lamenting the state of the, 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 the discipline in the sense that 
you know, um, if we want to talk to people in philosophy about these ideas, it's, it's hard for people to have an entryway into it. Uh, and also that there's a lot of work that hasn't yet been done on this topic, just from the point of view of uh, Indian philosophy. And so, you know, over, over, you know, kind of talked about this over the, over the years. And um, I thought, well, we should just put together some, some texts, you know, graduate student at this point. And I like, uh, and I was like, this would, this would be fun. You know, why don't we just kind of put together an edited volume? Uh, and so, you know, like maybe five years later, <laughs> it's, it's come out because um, what then I needed to do was find the right folks to contribute who could write um scholarly yet accessible translations uh, and we thought well um well you know in conversation with these folks who are doing the translation i thought well why not um also have some essays um, because the, the translation is going to be interesting to people maybe already interested in the topic but the essays can can help people dig into the uh, the ideas there so if you're a philosopher and you're not sure why this is important you can start with the essays and see see the connections and then go back to the primary sources so so it, it kind of came to be a larger complex more complicated project than a typical just collection of texts um, that's kind of the 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 story the genesis of, of the um the uh, the text so um, so the person that I mentioned uh, Lisa Fresky is involved but also other people who I um, I pulled in as as time went on to um, to translate and to write papers. Well, it's uh, it's interesting that whenever we as academics uh, lament a niche in scholarship, uh, <laughs> we we can always become the change. So to speak. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> and fill that niche. However, it's much easier just to complain about it. <laughs> that is true. It is true. Um, so one of one of the um, one of the interesting things about the texture of the volume is that mm-hmm. it's. Uh, it includes uh, primary text as well as uh, primary text that hasn't really been translated into English before, as well as, of course, um, essays. And there is um, a, a website, a companion website, where you can find the transliteration of the selected works in, in the volume. Uh, we will link that in the description of the podcast. So um, <laughs> there's two directions I wish to take. For those of you who listen to me regularly, I don't have a map when I come into these conversations. Mm-hmm. I sort of have to speak in the moment with, with the general thrust of what, what we hope you might want to hear about the book. But I think I want to first start with this. You know, okay, the, the title is Controversial Reasoning in Indian Philosophy. I want to talk about this thing called Indian philosophy, mm-hmm. just, just broadly. Mm-hmm. We'll have plenty of time to, to delve into, you know, the, the, uh, the big elephant in the room, which is mm-hmm. what is atapati and all that. But like, what is Indian philosophy? And, and maybe um, I don't want you to necessarily confine your response or respond solely to, you know, this kind of quick comparison of Indian philosophy versus mm-hmm. Western philosophy, but that may be something worth considering as well mm-hmm. as, you, as, you, as, you, as you school me today. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the thing to say about uh, Indian philosophy is that w- when I think of Indian philosophy, let me put it this way, I am um, attending to a uh, set of uh, sort of traditions within uh, the Indian subcontinent, of course, not necessarily overlapping with the, the nation, uh, the national boundaries of India today, um, a, a tradition of um, sort of 
critical investigation into things like um, our how we come to have knowledge, into uh, how we interpret texts, into the nature, fundamental nature of the world, things like this. These are um, and, and these are found within different disciplines or shastras uh, that may not be uh, what a lot of people think of as. Uh, philosophical uh, in, in this sense. So there's the, the tradition of the darshanas, which a lot of people know about these different, um, they're often characterized as schools, nyaya, mimamsa, uh, vedanta, and so on in the orthodox, in quotes here, Brahminical kind of tradition, as well as people like Buddhists and Jains and so on. And, and you think of, well, these are folks who are kind of debating back and forth about the nature of the self and reality and so on. And that seems straightforwardly philosophical to, um, at least for many people who are doing what you might characterize as Western philosophy, some familiar questions and topics. Uh, but I also think of Indian philosophy as um, being in, um, uh, there being philosophical thought in what we might call the grammatical traditions of thinkers, the Vyakarna, thinking um, about, for instance, Panini and Bhartrahari. They're considering how it is that words have reference, thinking about the, the relationship between uh, syntax and semantics, things like that. Uh, and then there's also um, within um, what's often called poetics, uh, the Alankara Shastra. So this is the, the discipline of um, poetics and figuration. You know, this, this is pragmatics. This is thinking about how we do things with words, um, how, how people respond cognitively and emotionally to poetry and drama. And that has a lot of overlap with, um, with what we would characterize as, as philosophy. Um, and so I would say that in Indian philosophy is big, it's vast. Uh, and the, the the boundaries may not look the same as what you find in a philosophy department in, uh, say, the United States or, or Europe or Asia. Um, but I think that there's um, a sort of family resemblance and overlap. And I think the differences are interesting to attend attend to as well. So, thank you. Now, the following question that comes to mind is something where you could probably write ten books on. But maybe if we can permit you, absolve you of all uh, <laughs> necessary academic slicing and dicing and, mm -hmm. and grant you the range of motion of, a, of an armchair thinker. Okay. Um, you know, philosophy versus religion, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the distinction is very different in the Western tradition, obviously. Mm -hmm. And in India, what would you say about that? Is philosophy very different from interspersed with? Like, how would you describe the relationship between Hindu religion and Indian philosophy, for example? Well, I mean, I think that um, as as you and your listeners, I'm sure know. I mean, the the concept of religion um, has a very particular pedigree in 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 Europe and um, sort of what we characterize as the West, in particular, and so. Um, I mean, I would say that distinction, though, even breaks down in um, in so-called Western philosophy before a, a certain period. Um, so, I mean, I don't I just I guess I think that um, those kinds of categories from um, sort of modern um, sort of post enlightenment thought are not necessarily super helpful in understanding what's going on. Um, in these, the texts that I'm looking at um, most of the time. 
Uh, just, just in terms of their, their historical period of composition. Um, you know, so I think there, there are concerns in these texts uh, that are about how human beings live their lives um, with regard to things of ultimate concern. And um, I think that's the purview of philosophy and of religion. Now, are there different methodologies? Well, yeah, maybe in different different time periods. But the, so, for instance, the thinkers that I am um, interested in, the Mimamsikas, school of uh, Vedic hermeneutics and exegesis, they are um, they're tough for philosophers because there's a concern with Vedic ritual and they have some starting points which are going to be different from you know maybe modern philosophers in the academy but when you dig in and look at what their concerns are they're also concerned with um, things like how action works how commands um, are structured they're concerned with uh, syntax semantics epistemology and all that's bound up with these concerns in a very historically concrete uh, religious context, but also in a broader sense of like, how do we as human beings uh, comport ourselves and act um, ethically? I mean, I'm not sure if this is answering your question. I just, I guess I would just say that I don't like uh, trying to silo off these categories and I try and understand what uh, these thinkers are doing in their texts and how they're thinking of of themselves and what categories they're they're drawing. Uh, those those boundaries may not overlap with the modern ones as well. No, I, it's always a scenic route in these interviews, and mm-hmm. um, uh, I, I tend to try and avoid leading questions. <laughs> uh, and I sort of like when folks can break through the binary the binaries innate to more often than not, Western modes of thinking and yep. understanding yep. the world, like uh, the Hindu goddesses uh, of the breast or of the tooth. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. In the Devi Mahatma, she's actually both, and you'd be mm-hmm. surprised at, at the one which is prioritized type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, your, your answer is fine. I'll tell you part of the reason, if I may, part mm-hmm. of the reason why I asked the question is, I have an interesting relationship to what you may call Indian philosophy in that um, I've received years of, of, of training and teaching uh, from uh, an Indian teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, aside outside of my academic work, which is on uh, Hindu narrative, Sanskrit narrative. Yeah. But uh, when I discovered, um, I initially went to the University of Toronto to study philosophy in English, you know, artsy fartsy type, right? Mm-hmm. Please. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in history, I uh, did half a degree and then uh, I dropped out and worked for a while. And then I, I came back because I discovered a course that started introduction to Hinduism. Mm-hmm. Didn't know they taught quote unquote Hinduism at the University of Toronto. And um, in under the rubric of Hinduism, I was able to feed my my curiosity about philosophy. I think my first paper was on Shankara, mm-hmm. Vedanta, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and so Indian philosophy has played a fair bit in my personal path. It hasn't played a fair bit at all in my academic trajectory because I'm more interested in narrative. Mm-hmm. But I find myself now um, uh, teaching, TAing, tutoring mm-hmm. um, an online course at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies in, in Hindu philosophy, where we look at Vedanta and Sankhya. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there are various types of students who come to that course yeah. and invariably the snag is, is this philosophy of yeah. religion or theology? Yeah. And it's sort of like, I'm glad you answered the question the way you did, which was to problemize the very question. The question is an imposition. And we, mm-hmm. as, 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 as slicers and dicers of, <laughs> yeah. of these, of these, uh, texts, um, we can, we were afforded that purview. 
Mm-hmm. But for people coming into an intro course, whether they're continuing studies learners or, or undergrads, yeah. that seems to be a common snag to kind of think around. Yeah. So thank you for answering it the way you did. Um, so Indian philosophy, uh, specifically, you were looking, Arthapati is a kind of epistemology. Before we dive into Arthapati, could you tell us a little bit about epistemology in the, uh, in the Indic context? Yeah. So, so epistemology is the the study of knowledge or or knowing uh, in philosophy, and <clears throat> there is a corresponding sort of category uh, within within uh, the what I'm going to call for the purposes of this interview Indian philosophy, and that's the um, pramana vadins. So, pramana is a term that means a um, epistemic instrument, a way of knowing. Sometimes people call it a knowledge source. And so there's a group of people who are um, concerned with these ways of knowing how it is we come to know, like things like perception when you see something or testimony when you hear some somebody's telling you something that's true. These are these are ways of knowing or epistemic instruments is my preferred term. Um, so this, there's a group of people who are concerned with how this, how these uh, epistemic instruments work, um, how many there are, how how we can check if we're using them, applying them properly, um, and this kind of cuts across uh, Buddhists and Nyaya and Mimamsa. Um, and so, so you can say there's a discipline of epistemology in some sense going on here, uh, and so. The thing I would just note for um, people who are familiar with epistemology in uh, contemporary analytic philosophy is that there is a real concern in this context with um, current episodes of knowing. So we're concerned with how it is that an individual person at a particular um, moment, uh, moments in time, comes to have knowledge and, and sort of a moment of awareness that something is the case. So seeing that there's a computer in front of me or knowing, you know, knowing that Raj is telling me he's in Toronto and that that's true. Um, And so that is a, um, as a concern that they have, which in some ways puts them in a different starting point than just thinking about knowledge sort of written general, which includes things like I'm, I have dispositions or like um, inclined to report beliefs that are true to you. We're concerned with with moments here, you know, sort of actions, events, I should say. And what are um, what are sort of the typical pramanas? You could even mention a uh, means of knowledge. You could even mention how they may differ among yep. the, the two schools you're talking about. Tell us about the means of knowledge. Yeah. So, um, so first of all, in in this context, we're really considering Nyaya and Mimamsa. So, Nyaya is a group of thinkers known um, as some people call them the sort of logicians, but reasoners is maybe better. Um, they're they're concerned with re- with rules of reasoning, with rules of um, uh, sort of. Um, I'll just leave it at that. And then Mimamsa, as I mentioned earlier, is a, a group concerned in particular with Vedic. Uh, interpretation. So they're very concerned with language. Both of these think these groups of thinkers that are concerned with epistemology, broadly speaking. So, so for both of these groups, perception is a pramana or a, a, a way of knowing. Um, in other words, if I'm actually seeing something, um, then I know that the thing is there. Um, so perception, um, 
you know, hearing, uh, touching, smelling, tasting, all of our sort of sense faculties. Those, those are pramanas, ways of knowing. That's a, that's a common one, uh, starting point for most, most folks. Um, and then, then you have inference, which is an important one in this context. So um, inference is when um, I have had, uh, so here's the standard uh, example, smoke and fire. I've had a bunch of experiences in the past where I've seen smoke and fire together. Uh, and then comes this day where I'm out walking and I see smoke in the distant hills. Uh, and I say, oh, there's, there's fire on that hill. I have done uh, what's called inference or anumana um, because I have reason from the seeing of that smoke on the hill um, against the fact that I know that where there's smoke, there's fire because I've experienced these connections uh, to the fact that that, that, that uh, case on the, on the hill is like the ones I've experienced. And so, so there's fire on the, on the hill. So that's inference. And um, that is an important one for orthopathy. Um, and then the other, um, the other sort of big one to uh, mention in this context is uh, testimony. Uh, testimony is when someone tells me something that is true and that they themselves have knowledge of. Uh, and so when I hear and understand what um, they're telling me, I also come to have knowledge. Uh, so those are three of the, the ones that, that really overlap. The key one for uh, this book, which we'll talk about, is inference. Um, because that one, um, one group of thinkers and Yaya philosophers say, well, this is, this is, there's a various different kinds of inference. Smoke and fire is one, but there's others. Um, Mimamsa philosophers though say, no, there's actually another one that you haven't included and that's arthopathy. Uh, and that's a case where say I go out, um, I know that my friend, uh, Raj is, is alive, you know, he's healthy, he's well, uh, and I know he's at home. Um, he's, he's always at home. I always see him sitting on his front porch, right? I, so it's something I know about. He just like sits out there all the time. I go yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sit, sitting out drinking, drinking beer on his porch. Uh, so I go out, um, one day and, I see that Raj is not there. Now I'm going to set aside for just a moment how I how I, I, I whether I see his absence directly or I infer that he's not there. But but Raj isn't there. Um, through orthopathy, through postulation, I reason this way. Well, it would be inexplicable, or um, it would be impossible that Raj is alive and that he is absent from his house unless he is alive and he's away from his house. He's outside. So, so this is postulation. I have said there's something that doesn't make sense unless there's this further fact that is true. And that's it that Raj is alive and, and outside of his, his home. And uh, now Nyaya philosophers are going to say, well, this is just inference. Um, and we can give you a story of how this fits into our model of inference. It's not exactly like the smoke fire case. It turns out to be a little different, but it's inference. And Mimamsa philosophers say, well, no, 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 this is something, something different. Uh, so that's, that's a, the high level overview. We can elaborate as, as we go. That was, uh, yeah, that was very well elucidated. Uh, so just uh, for those of you out there listening for the quiz when we're done, <laughs> kidding, obviously, uh, Indian philosophy, epistemology, means of knowing, 
uh, three primary means that we're talking about are pratyaksha, direct perception, sensory perception, anumana, inference, where there's smoke, there's fire, and shabda, uh, you know, uh, so spake the Lord. Yeah, uh, right. it was on, on good testimony. You know, an expert uh, tells you, uh, your, your physician tells you something about the mm-hmm. body. You provided, you know, he's on a crackpot, you assume mm-hmm. that it's correct. And so those are three primary means of knowing. Mm-hmm. And now this middle one, this inference, where there's smoke, this fire, that's great. But where Raj is not home, Raj is God knows where. Mm-hmm. Can I just infer something? Mm-hmm. Or do I have to postulate? Posit. Do right. I have to generate something right. from within me in order to arrive at a, a reasonable conclusion? Is this yeah. is this that's, that's, that's right. right? That's right. There's. I think there's two things I would say. One is I want to sharpen the idea of. Um, so I use the words testimony, and I would say that um, there's not a really great neutral term for shabda. I mean, shabda is just like speech or language. Maybe is better for the mimamsa. Because for Mimamsa philosophers, the Vedas aren't um, uh, authored by a divine being. They're, um, they're just always existent. And so we don't, in the case for them, always, for every case of language, have a, a speaker who is uh, a trustworthy um, conveyor of truth. So that's an important wrinkle here that um, we don't have to, for me, moms, I'll always have a, a trustworthy speaker for something to count as language uh, knowing and you know, knowing from that way. So, so that's one little, one little thing I would want to make sure we... we um, make clear because that, that's important for for me mamsa here uh the the other thing that you what you were saying about the way you, way you were characterizing the the raj not being at home case and the smoke and fire case maybe one thing you can see that's a difference between them immediately is that i can have lots of experiences of smoke and fire being present together but the problem with the case of um your absence from home is that it's hard to um, draw a, uh, a a correlation or correspondence between the absence of something, uh, the absence of one thing, and the existence of something else. So this is this is a thing that's known as negative uh, only inference, and so it's something like. Um, ha- wherever there's the absence of something. Uh, then there's some other other property um but the the worry is that um uh without any kind of positive example you're you're sort of unleashing any kind of inference um you're you can sort of just say um you know well um you know whenever there's the absence of this thing um let me put it this way. I'm trying to think how to, what a good example is. So um, the, the, an example that is used is um, uh, living bodies. Living bodies have, have, um, have selves, right? That's a, a standard thing that people are asserting. Um, but you could also put it this way. Living bodies have this property. They don't not have a self. They, they don't um, uh, lack a self. Um, and, and why is that? Well, because living, living creatures are, are alive. 
And wherever there is someone's being alive, there's this corresponding property of not lacking a self. Um, and then you give this this negative example where you're like, well, here's a here's a here's a pot. A pot uh, is not alive, and it lacks a self. But here's the thing: I can't give you a sort of um, a positive example of of someone who um, is uh, is alive and does not lack a self. Because all, all of the cases of people who are alive and lack, uh, don't lack a self um, are, are the cases under discussion. So, so I would be basically begging the question in order to, to give that example. The only examples I have are negative examples, cases where uh, it's not like the thing under discussion. But the, the worry here is it's like, well, how can I infer just from things which are different um, the presence of something, uh, the, the property that I'm trying to argue for. It's like, it doesn't seem like it's related. It's like, sure, you, pots don't have cells. That's fine. Uh, we see that wherever there's these pots, there's, there isn't this thing, there is selfhood. Um, and there is the presence of this thing not having selfhood. But how in the world does that have anything to do with whether or not you and I lack selves? So the, so the, the worry here for this kind of um, inference known as negative only inference is that um, how do we move from only negative examples to our, the thing that we're inferring? And so in the case of, of, uh, of Raj not being at home, it's like, well, I, I, don't, I don't have a... Um, a positive example of um, someone's uh, absence from this, the, the house and being somewhere else because I can't perceive both of those things at the same time. Right. And so, so I, I mentioned that you will be schooling me today and hopefully uh, in so doing schooling, whomever is listening. So uh, we go to Michael's house and you ring Michael's doorbell. Mm -hmm. And ding dong, um, no one answers. Mm -hmm. Oh, we have a key to Michael's house. We enter Michael's house. Yeah, we see. Mm -hmm. Michael's not asleep. Michael's nowhere on the premises. Mm -hmm. Michael's not in the backyard. Mm -hmm. Where is Michael? Mm -hmm. It's sort of like, where's Waldo? But Michael's not really there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> where, where is Michael? Exactly. And so, um, you know... Uh, uh, if one watches a great many Dateline episodes, one may think the worst. <laughs> mm -hmm. Michael has been abducted. Michael mm -hmm. is in danger. Michael's injured. Michael mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. dead. Michael's in the trunk of someone's car. Michael's yep. at the movies. Yeah. Uh, yep. Michael is God knows where. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in all of these possibilities, mm -hmm. unlike the smoke and fire example, it's mm -hmm. not that your mind can land on one. Uh, it's sort of... Um, you 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 postulate one of a number of things, but it's not a singular thing that you can postulate. So that well, correct? Not not exactly. And so here here's here's the important thing: is that um, remember, I know that Michael is alive. Okay, so when I, I I have this this background piece of knowledge, Michael's alive, and when I come to the house and I see that. Um, 
he is absent. Um, I still have this, this information that he's alive. But here's a place where he's not alive. He's not alive at his house. So it doesn't make sense that he is um, alive and not alive at his house unless I say, well, he's alive somewhere else. So, so the important thing for, at least for me, Mamsa, is that I, I am trying to account for an apparent uh, clash or an apparent, at least this is the Bhatta um, view here, which I'm, I'm, we can talk about another one in, in a second. There, there's, an, there's an apparent uh, inconsistency between two things. And in order to account for that apparent inconsistency, there's this third thing that I have to posit. And the key thing here um, for, for me, Mamsa, um, is that it has to be this third thing. So, and this is one of the, 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 the disputes that comes out in this book um, where there's a kind of reasoning that a lot of people might initially think this sounds like, which is uh, an inference to the best explanation. So a lot of people might say, well, okay, well, well, what I'm doing is I'm saying, well, the best explanation of why uh, Michael's not at home is that he's, he's, he's outside, right? And he's alive. Well, I, I, I'd say that the, the thing is that with an inference to the best explanation, it's one explanation among many. And typically the status of uh, the conclusion to an inference to the best explanation we think of as like it's a hypothesis for further exploration we don't so much characterize it as now this is something that i know um so so the debate that comes comes up in this in this book is well it seems like what these these uh, mimamsa philosophers are saying is no i know that this guy's not at home um, I know that he's outside and that he's alive, and I'm not picking one option among many. Um, it's sort of an inference to the only possible explanation. Uh, and so, so that is so. So it's crucial that we recognize that this is a way of knowing, just like perception or testimony or inference. It, it gives us something that we know, and it gives us a specific thing that we know, which has to be the case given two other things that we know. So for the school of Mimamsa, what's at stake? Why is this important? Yeah. So for, for Mimamsa, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of things. First, big picture here. Why is this at all important? Well, when you come to know something, um, if someone, for instance, challenges you on your knowing, why do you know that? Um, well, there are a number of things you can do, but one thing you can do is you can point to the operation of your sense faculties. You can point to the way that you've reasoned and so on. Um, and if you know um, that you're reasoning by orthopathy as opposed to by anumana, you're going to point to different features of, of your reasoning. To, so that's a, that's a general thing that I think is probably at stake for everybody. For Mimamsa, though, they're um, really concerned, like I've said, with Vedic exegesis or an interpretation. And there's another way in which uh, orthopathy works, which is having to do with texts, bits of text. So I just said that uh, orthopathy works um, 
for mimamsa as, uh, for bata mimamsas as a, a sort of making sense out of something that otherwise wouldn't make sense two things well this works in the context of texts as well so uh for instance here's an example um uh, I'll use the, the the standard Sanskrit example, and then we can update it to a, a more fun modern one if you want. But it's you, here's a sentence somebody says: uh, "Fat Devadatta does not eat during the day." Okay. Now, it, it, I start with this one because this is the one that's in the text. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have the same effect on most modern uh, people. But here's the thing: in the background, people. Um, uh, so. David Dutta, uh, he, he's portly, he's stout, he's clearly um, not not eating, you know, he's not abstaining from eating at all. But what I've just said is that he is not eating during the day. So um, what uh, Mimamsa philosophers such as Kumarla um, will say is, well, there is a kind of orthopathy that works on language, uh, shabda, as you said, things that we, we hear. And with that orthopathy, what doesn't make sense is that Devadatta is fat and that he doesn't eat during the day. That doesn't make sense unless Devadatta eats at night. And so that is the thing which is uh, postulated or posited using orthopathy. Now, that's not a Vedic uh, sentence, um, but it illustrates the way in which from things which are spoken, um, we can draw conclusions about things which are unspoken. So, and this is important when it comes to Vedic exegesis because there are um, unspoken um, uh, implications, let's say, of the uh, Vedic texts which Mimamsa philosophers are concerned to draw out and they're concerned to show that this isn't just it's it's not just one hypothesis among many but this is this is something that we can know uh this is a pramana it's a way of knowing so um done correctly and orthopathy lets us come to know something uh uns unspoken unheard from a piece of text that we have have heard so um, one example that's talked about in the book, and we mentioned it briefly um, uh, in an earlier conversation, was, you know, someone uh, saying uh, door, door, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. while yep. they're carrying something. Uh, exactly. Maybe their hands are full behind you, mm -hmm. coming into your building or, or, or coming in wherever. They say door, door. And then, so what the school of thought, if I'm understanding this correctly, is saying is that, well, you, uh, the person has an intention. Um, and if you, if you successfully use orthopathy, you will know their intention. Yeah. Uh, so, if even if unspoken, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and here I think I can make a little bit more precise something that I've been leaving uh, hanging a bit. So I've mentioned Bimamsa, 
Um, and there are two different groups within Mimamsa, uh, Bhatta and Prabhakara. They're, they're following, the first is following this commentator, Kumarala Bhatta, who, who writes a, a commentary on the, the Shabara Basha. Basha. Uh, and then the second group is following a fellow named Prabhakara. Long A shows that it's a follower's Prabhakaras, uh, who also is writing um, commentaries on the same text. So it's sort of like two branches here. Um, and when it comes to this case of door door, these two groups of Mimamsa philosophers have slightly different accounts of what is going on, and this might help sharpen our understanding of of orthopathy and some of the the, the disputes. So, when you say door door for uh, someone like Kumarla. Um, this is a kind, the way that I fill out or, or come to understand what's unspoken is called shruta arthopathy uh, or uh, arthopathy about what is heard, shruta. And um, so for him, there's a, there's a sort of difference in kind between that kind of arthopathy and the ones we've talking been talking about before, which are uh, people who are not at home and things that I, I see. So all of the sort of epistemic instruments, the pramanas, except for language, um, they all work under this one kind of arthopathy, drishta arthopathy, so arthopathy about what was experienced. But the other kind of arthopathy works with language. So one sort of rough way of getting at it is that the the way that I'm I'm my mind is working is that I am I am drawing uh, conclusions. I'm trying to avoid using the word inference here because I don't want us to think this is anumana. Um, I'm drawing conclusions. I'm reasoning with bits of language, uh, and so that this is a different kind of reasoning in some sense than the reasoning that I'm doing with facts that I have observed. Let's say things that I've experienced um, through, through perception. Um, and so what happens for Kumarla is when I, say, when I hear someone say door, door, I am through this particular kind of arthopathy, linguistic arthopathy, I form in my mind, you might think, a complete sentence. So somewhere in my mind, I then entertain this, this linguistic bit, this sentence, open the door. If, uh, if I'm going in behind someone, I want them to keep the door open. Now, uh, Prabhakara thinkers are, uh, say, well, you don't actually need to entertain the whole sentence in the sense of filling in the linguistic bits. Um, this whole distinction between two different kinds of orthopathies, you know, like this is just splitting hairs and it's not, it's actually not characterizing the way we, we reason helpfully. Um, instead, what you're doing is you are just filling in the, the content or the fact or, or the object. So instead of com completing the sentence in your mind, let's say, what you're doing is you're sort of moving to what the, the meaning of open would be. So I don't have to entertain the, the word open along with the word door. I just have to know What's meant? So this is a so this is a difference between the bata and the prabhakara um, on on this, and and it, and it tracks folks who work in philosophy of language, contemporary philosophy of language, will know of is tracking a little bit some debates in uh, contemporary linguistics and philosophy about how how ellipsis works. But I, I'll I'll just flag that and I won't go into it. 
Well, these uh, these distinctions must be quite relevant to uh, Vedic exegesis or, or text versus language or, or something you can observe. Wouldn't that be the case? Yeah, and so for for the um, so I can just mention in some of the texts in the the that are translated in this uh, book, there is discussion of what's known as uha, um, which is sort of a, an extrapolation, uh, sorry, a modification of Vedic mantras based on context. So um, you you sort of depending on uh, the the ritual action that you're doing, you're going to change the uh, the the god uh, that your your mantra is being um, spoken to, and that might involve changing the sort of grammatical case, um, the case ending, because uh, it's going to be a, a different uh, morphology. So you you decline the the, the god's name differently, and so. How do we we know how to do that? Well, um, we use orthopathy is um, the answer. And so there's in, in one text that I translated, the Manameodaya, uh, Narayana Bhatta in the, like, uh, I guess, 16th-ish century. Um, there's a discussion about how orthopathy is important for Vedic mantras. Um, and, and this, this so there's, so this is, very clear um, applications to specifically Vedic concerns um, in this discussion of orthopathy. And so for for the followers of Nyaya, what mm-hmm. would they say about orthopathy? Yeah, so, so well, I'd say two things. One is that broadly speaking, Nyaya philosophers are going to want to reduce orthopathy to anumana, this um, what often people characterize as uh, or translate as inference. Um, but again, it, recall that inference here is this particular kind of inference where I have observed or experienced this correlation between two things, and I know that where one thing is, the other thing also is. Um, so so Nyaya philosophers are going to say this is this is just anumana, uh, but it's a this particular kind of anumana that I mentioned earlier, which is a sort of negative only, where I am drawing my um, my re- my I'm reasoning on the basis of um, sort of negative cases. I'm never seeing um, you know. Uh, the person's absence from the house and their being somewhere else at the same time. I never observe that because I'm at the house. You, you, you just can't, can't physically observe correlation between those two things. So you have to reason um, on the basis of, of something else, of, of, of sort of the, these negative ex- of exa- examples. Um, and so for Nyaya philosophers, um, they're broadly going to understand it in that way. But one of the points of this book is to say, you know, not all Nyaya philosophers have the same explanation of how orthopathy works. Um, and in fact, one of the, um, the essays in this book argues that, um, we can get to this um, in a minute maybe, argues that in fact, not all Nyaya philosophers um, are going to, uh, yeah, they're, they're not all going to have the same position. So, so one of the 
one of the interventions, I guess you could say, that this book is trying to do is uh, to show that there's actually more to these debates than people have often um, un- understood. So a lot of times what you'll just see in, in textbooks is like, well, Mimamsa accept Arthapati, Nyaya reject it. For Nyaya, it's negative only inference. For Mimamsa, there's this debate between Bhatta and Prabhakar, and, then, and that's sort of it. But there hasn't been the attention paid to individual thinkers within these traditions and their particular perspectives. And so for Nyaya to really understand what, what Nyaya thinks, you have to say, well, which Nyaya philosopher? Are we talking early Nyaya philosophers like Vatsyayana and Ajyotakara? Are we talking later philosophers like Gungesha? Um, are we talking, you know, th- th- these are these are the questions that we're trying to answer in this book um, to go back, um, to go beyond a sort of thinking of, of a school as like a monolith. Are you are you currently uh, still working on orthopathy? Uh Yes and no. Um, I, I have a few drafts kind of sitting sitting around that I think about now and again, in particular with regard to ellipsis and orthopathy. Um, but really, orthopathy now is it's just um, it's coming up in the um, context of other um, texts where. I feel like I have a, a better understanding of the broader, um, broader context for the discussion about it. And it, I, I guess I would just say this, I see orthopathy as being very pervasive in Mimamsa in ways that I think we still need to appreciate. Um, but it's not so much a particular uh, focus for me right now. Um, I'm actually looking at uh, Upamana in Kumarla, which is the, um, Pramana we didn't talk about, which is uh, comparison or analogy. So, um, so that's actually the the Pramana I'm looking at now. I'm trying to, some some people joke I'm that I'm just going through and finding the uh, the the lesser discussed Pramanas and and trying to to pull to sort of understand. You, you are you are a champion of the underdogs of means of knowledge. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> all those all the ones that uh, that Mimamsa thinks are are independent Pramanas and different from Nyaya. I want to go and go look at those. So. Well, someone's got to do it. Why not? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I have a question. Mm-hmm. We're, we're pretty much um, we're taking enough of your time for yeah. one day. Um, just one question that's a more broad question, not uh, beyond uh, the confines of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you seem to have an ability to translate um, philosophical concepts uh, or discourse in the, in an accessible way. Yes, that seems to be. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you think so. <laughs> that seems to be, well, as somebody who straddles that line, uh, mm-hmm. uh, it takes one to know one, I suppose. <laughs> but um, I'm wondering, it comes across in, in, in the book, and you, you alluded that that was sort of one of the aims of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, it also comes across in the interview where... Um, some people just seem to be more inclined and more able to render accessible complex ideas. Mm-hmm. There are those who feel the complexity is lost. Mm-hmm. There are those who feel that it's not, you know, it's, it's the job of the interlocutor to keep up if they can. <laughs> there, there are those who feel, well, uh, none should be left behind if, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, 
So I'm, I'm just wondering, can you tell me a little bit about that in terms of, yeah. is that something that you typically, is it a way of being for you? Is it something you've consciously developed? Is it a, a teaching strategy? Is it a writing strategy? Yeah. If you don't mind sharing, I'd sure. love to hear. Sure. No, it's, it's something I've been thinking about um, uh, a lot more in the past uh, few years, uh, actually. Um, so I, I do, let me put it this way. In what I've just been just talking to you about, I have been very aware that I have run sort of fast and loose over some distinctions. Um, and there are really cool, interesting nuances that I, I omitted. Um, but in the purpose of this context for this interview, my thought is, well, I'm hoping to get people to maybe find some interesting things in, in what I've said that they can dig into. And that I've hopefully not said anything that's um, so false that when they go and they read the actual details, they thought they think I was misleading them. So that's sort of one principle is audience sensitivity. Um, and, you know, as, as academics, I think often um, our audiences are small. Uh, so, for instance, this particular book, you know, you might think, well, there's about 10 people who who know a lot about orthopathy and Mimamsa and Nyaya and Buddhism. And, you know, and you can just make a very, very narrow group of people that were just all sort of talking to one another. Um, and, and I don't think that it's... Um, I think there's a place and a time for that. I think uh, the workshop that this that we did for this book was was amazing in that way. We got into some super fine grained details that, yeah, people should just you know people would would have to really keep up. They would have to to know a lot of things in order to keep up. But I think that um, for myself at least, I find that if it's it keeps me honest, if I can convey what I'm doing to a broader audience. Um, I also think, well, why do I care about these things? Uh, it's not just um, because I think it's it's cool to, you know, read Sanskrit and, and parse um, difficult texts, even though there's there's a pleasure in that. And, I, and, I, and I'll admit that there, there are times where I just I love digging into Mimamsa because it's it's a challenge, um, you know, and I have to go learn about uh, rituals, which to me are obscure and figure out what's going on. And that's puzzling. But 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 why? Why did I get pulled into it? Well, it's because I think that these people um, that I'm reading are saying something that is still interesting and relevant uh, today. Um, and, and so it's a tension, I think. It's on the one hand, you don't want to be so broad and so focused on the current moment that you lose the way in which the past can challenge and speak to us um, and can push us to be sharper. Uh, but on the other hand, if I am just constantly thinking about um, the sort of, uh, I guess we would say, emic context in these categories and um, and just getting pulled into sort of the um, uh, really uh, uh, sort of internal small small debate, small in the sense of like, what does this word mean in this passage and so on? Um, then I feel like I'm losing the big, the big picture and why these texts were even written in the, in the first place. So I guess I think of it as a sort of a, a dialectic back and forth for myself and also hopefully for, for people I speak with. You know, that, um, 
That response uh, really resonates. I have all kinds of folks on the podcast, all kinds of methodologies, data mm-hmm. projects, mm-hmm. swabhavas, if you will, mm-hmm. and Tagal, uh, Honestly, I'm mm-hmm. here to sort of uh, be unified uh, as a, uh, as a fellow academic studying what we call Hinduism and, mm-hmm. and bridging it to a larger public audience who may be interested for their own edification, potential study, who knows what. Yeah. And so I sort of live, I sort of that straddling of these two worlds of like the, the nitty gritty ancient Sanskrit textual and sort of the modern Western, you know, application or, or relevance. Yeah. Um, I yeah. sort of live there and, you know, you know, I, I infer that my, my brain works fine. Mm-hmm. But in addition to that, I think um, much of much of the success I've enjoyed is just communicating the relevance mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In, a, in a grant project, in a proposal, you yeah. know, and, you know, it, it strikes me, uh, it, it, it's a, it's a common experience for me uh, to talk to someone about their work and understand that that person doesn't understand the relevance of their work outside mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. academy. It's not yeah. that it's, it's obsolete. They yeah. move yeah. to spend, you know, five, seven, 10 years to do a PhD, it, much more for the, the, the intellectual challenge of parsing out a, of splitting a hair. Mm-hmm. There's, there's some, you care about it for a reason. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so what you say is really relevant. And <laughs> I was, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm a human being and as a human being, I'm prone to self-doubt uh, here and there. And I was, I was thinking to myself, you know, we've done some fairly conversational podcasts over the summer and, you know, let's get serious now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, <laughs> the minute yeah. I have this thought, you know, uh, no one really contacts me about the podcast, which is fine. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, people can always contact me through my website, uh, rajbalkarin.com, but I get this message just a couple days ago. Um, I'm just going to read it uh, randomly, uh, just mm-hmm. from a listener. I wanted to drop a note to thank you for the Hindu Studies podcast. I love how you how you interview people with a beginner's mind mm-hmm. and ask the right questions, which helps the listener go deeper into the topic. Mm-hmm. Thank you for these interviews. Mm-hmm. And so this is one of the few audiences where I've got my, 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 my conference colleagues listening mm-hmm. as well as the continuing yeah. studies audience, as well as an undergrad, as well as somebody who's a heritage learner. Yeah. And that's part of the difficulty yeah. in keeping it accessible, but also yeah. uh, being responsible and thorough. So it's, it's interesting to hear your journey navigating yeah. that. And I, uh, I think you do a good job of it, and I don't. I don't necessarily think it's everybody's dharma. No, no, it's not. I think I think those who have the, that calling or ability, I think the academy would be well served to yeah. allow them to do that more and more. Yeah, well, and just one last thing relating that to the to the book that we're talking about. I think that's that's the hope with this, the approach of this book, um, and the members of the, the sort of writing team here. Um, you, we have um, members, so people who have written for this this book, who are um, just you know killer Sanskritists, and um, who just could run circles around me at a philological level and just go really, really deep. And there are aspects of that in this book, uh, and so I don't want my high level um, uh, discussion to sort of obscure that, um, but. At the same time, we also have people in the book who are, um, so one contributor who is a, um, you know, I think he, he's working on Sanskrit, but he his training is analytic philosophy and he came to Indian philosophy later. Uh, and he is able to sort of pull out the connections that he sees between these conversations 
and, and things that he's doing now. And so you, what I've really tried to do in the book is have a gamut from translation and sort of exegetical papers that are sort of interpreting the text um, and, and thinking along with these, these thinkers to how does this impact some current conversations in in analytic philosophy, and my hope is that the reader then can can work out for themselves where they want to be in that in that dialectic. You know, there will be people reading the book who don't really care about the analytic philosophy, and they just want to know what, you know, how how Mimamsa and Yaya hashed this stuff out. And then there are other people for whom their question is about um, reasoning. Uh, human reasoning and its relationship to our um, our you know mental uh, states and our use of language, and they're going to find that interesting and maybe maybe be sort of invited into this world of uh, of Indian Indian thought. Um, but so so that's a that's a hope. Um, so if if I have I haven't done the complexity of the book uh, justice necessarily, but um, hopefully it gives you a high level sense of what some of the debates are. And there's uh, it's a I think it's a it's a fairly it's a rich book in in that sense as an edited volume. It's um, a co- I try to make it a coherent whole, not just a, a set of disconnected um, papers. So you're able to tell a story, uh, which is which is wonderful, wonderful quality. And with academic publications, as a foregone conclusion that there's lots of slicing and dicing and mm-hmm. integrity. And mm-hmm. that's just, I mean, uh, people infer that from the laborious peer review <laughs> process, right? <laughs> right. So uh, in this podcast, it's it's safer to err on the side of accessibility. Yeah. So that's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for making the time. Sure, of course. To be with us today. Uh, we've been speaking with Malcolm Keating on a brand new uh, 2020 uh, Bloomsbury academic publication, Controversial Reasoning in Indian Philosophy. Um, Until next time, stay safe, keep reading, keep listening, um, and keep wondering about this um, mythical beast called Indian philosophy. Take care. (laughs) Great, thanks.